Тамару, ты душа любезный, совсем не под пару, ты цветочка кроза родного Кавказа. Well, hello and welcome to Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. As you all know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And you lovely listeners out there who are generous and give us monthly patronage by throwing us a couple of dollars, if you'd like to contribute a couple of dollars every month, Please consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash not or to yourenot.org and find that Patreon button and sign up and give us some cash. So, Sean, since I was absent from the podcast for a couple of months and didn't really partake in the selection process for the interview, I was just curious as to why you decided to invite Sasha, and why were you interested in talking about the Soviet Jew? Yeah. Well, first off, like Ilya Vanitsky from a couple of episodes ago, Sasha was invited to give a talk here at the University of Pittsburgh, so I really took advantage of the fact that he was here and to pull him into the studio and record an interview with him. I'd like to do more of this just because doing interviews in person are so much more enjoyable than doing them remotely to actually meet and talk to somebody. But also, I I was interested in this issue of the Soviet Jew and Soviet Jews in general. And I learned a lot, as you would imagine. So his book, How the Soviet Jew Was Made, covers from 1917 to about the late 30s. One of the things I really found interesting is that his metaphor for understanding what constitutes this figure of the Soviet Jew is kind of like a recipe. There are all sorts of interesting historical experiences and cultural phenomenon and political phenomenon that go into this mix that produces this figure of the Soviet Jew. Yeah, I guess I, I shouldn't ask for a follow-up what are those ingredients for the recipe because that would be that would be a spoiler for the interview. Well, I can I think <laughs> it's I think it's worth outlining them quite quickly. So just to give the ingredients, let's say two cups of emancipation <laughs> and mobility after 1917, because as you probably uh-huh. know, Jews could not live outside the pale of settlement, mm-hmm. which is what is today Belarus, Ukraine, Poland part of the Russian Empire. And then you probably can throw in like a couple of cups of violence and anti-Semitism and pogroms against Mm -hmm. Jews of that region, particularly during the Russian Civil War. Of course, you have the pogroms of the late imperial period, but the Russian Civil War is incredibly violent in terms of anti-Jewish violence. Then there is the Yiddish culture, intellectual, but also folklore of Jews of that region nationalism, of course, the emergence of Zionism, the idea that Jews aspire to a nation state. And the other one is migration in terms of like immigrating abroad. And then those Jews who come back to the Soviet Union for a variety of reasons, whether to visit, to see, the course, the great promised land, or those who are scattered all across the Soviet Union and find themselves integrated in cities, leaving the shtetl behind. You know, like a lot of Soviet citizens, Jews were expected to become new Soviet people. And that's part of the mix as well. I wonder if he talks at all about the Jewish autonomous region, which he was does. also the product of the time. Oh, I wish I wasn't present <laughs> at the interview. Part of my family moved to the Jewish autonomous oh, region really? in oh, the wow. 20s. Yeah, they lived in Birbijan. Yes, it's actually interesting because what Sasha looks at is literature, a lot of Yiddish literature that's interestingly published in the Soviet Union. 
and uh, film. And Bitter Bijan plays a role in the sense of you have these writers who are writing about the idea that the Jewish Autonomous Republic, now Jews can have their own homeland, even though it's out in the middle of Siberia, which has no relationship historically to Jews whatsoever. But what's interesting, a lot of these writers who are writing about Bitter Bijan, there's hardly any Jews in their text because there aren't many Jews to actually go there. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think they ever constituted the majority. No. I think at its height, there was about 30, 35% yeah. who were Jews in the region. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so much so, there's this funny moment in, in his book, and I actually ask him about it and read this passage. There's a, there's a novel by a man named Victor Fink who writes about the migration of Jews to Bitterbijan. And about 100 pages into the book, Fink writes, Dear reader, you've been reading about Cossacks and hunters and primitives and the taiga and the animals and stuff, and no Jews. <laughs> and he's like, why? And it's because there aren't any. He basically is writing about Bitter Bijan, but he can't write about what's not there. So he ends up writing about a bunch of other things. <laughs> so, so, so it's very interesting. And Sasha is a great, very lively speaker, as people will hear. So I, I had a lot of fun talking to him and meeting him. So why don't you go ahead and introduce him and we can get to the interview. Sasha Sandorovich is an associate professor in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Washington. He's the translator of Moshe Kulbak's Soviet Yiddish novel, The Zemlyaners, a family saga. And together with Harriet Murav, he translated the Yiddish writer David Bergelson's Judgment, a novel. He's the author of How the Soviet Jew Was Made, published by Harvard University Press. Here's Sasha Sandorovich. So, Sasha, it's really nice to talk to you and, and welcome to Pittsburgh. It's great to, to be able to interview you in person as opposed to over the internet. And today we're going to talk about this book you have, How the Soviet Jew Was Made. And when I was at graduate school in UCLA, I was told that I never got the opportunity to take a seminar with Carlo Ginsburg. But a friend of mine told me that he always starts talking about a book by talking about the title. <laughs> so to an ode to the great Carlo Ginsburg, I want to talk about your title because one of the things that immediately struck me about how the Soviet Jew was made is that it's in the passive voice. There's no agent. And I was curious as to why. Thank you for the question. First of all, thank you for having me on. I'm a dedicated listener of, of your podcast, including in its previous iteration before the Eurasian Knot. And it's just uh, lovely to be here and in person. It's great that you started the question with Carla Gisbert because so my partner actually went to grad school at UCLA and once took a class with Carla Ginsburg. <laughs> and once when visiting her, I attended a class with Carla Ginsburg. And I don't remember very much about what happened there, but... He was just sort of talking in a way that I don't think was quite understandable to the students. So there was a sort of a lot of sense of being in awe of someone <laughs> who is – and of course, I've, I've, I've read his books. It was a really great experience. But to your question, I kind of decided to dare and see if an editor would go for this title. So actually, that title was my suggestion. And to my surprise, the editor let me keep it and even – agreed that it should not have a subtitle, uh, which is, I think, very rare for an academic book. 
And I think we were kind of going in my head. It was almost like a joke to begin with, but I was thinking of something like a Soviet-era production novel, how the steel was tempered, you know, and that was in my head. I right? tried to think about the early Soviet period as a time when lots of things are being made, but also lots of people are being made, and how like the different sort of types of people were so uh, thrown out of their sort of familiar contexts in the pre-revolutionary period that they could become anything, could be made into anything. And I think that, of course, there is their agency in it as well, but so much of it is something that is a constellation of kind of cultural, historical, political, economic, etc. forces. So I think in my head it translated to this kind of version of talking about a cultural type. And I guess I'm also trying to think about the Soviet Jew, right, as a cultural figure as opposed to Soviet Jews as sort of a people or a particular people or individuals. And I'm trying to think about the sort of typology within its broader kind of cultural discourse about how a new type of person or a new cultural type comes into being through an interrelation of all of these kind of historical, economic, political, etc. forces. So the lack of agency is the, the environment, I guess, taken broadly, in which something like that comes to be. And so to do this, I'm a scholar of literature, film, culture. I try to figure out how the Soviet Union was made with the help of those kinds of texts, literary texts, cinematic texts, and various other kind of cultural tidbits. Right. In a way, it's a, it's a bit of a modest move because it would be quite presumptuous for you to attach one subject, one agent to the creation of this figure of the Soviet Jew in some respects. Right. When people ask me, I sometimes joke, it's a recipe book, <laughs> right? And, and there is, you know, like a, a little bit of trauma of pogroms and a right. little bit of this and a little bit of that. And then you end up with the Soviet Jew. <laughs> right, right. I actually really like that, the recipe book. So what brought you to write this book? Are you a Soviet Jew or descendant of being a Soviet Jew? Does it touch a personal thing, biography of yours or? Thank you for the question. So I am, I think I'm definitely the descendant of the type. And we can talk about that later because my book goes through the end of the 1930s and one could think of a sequel of about the Cold War. And I think I'm much more a descendant of that later period. And that's still percolating in my head. But the motivation wasn't actually autobiographical. I was born in the Soviet Union. My first definitive kind of historical moment that I remember is 1991. I was 10. Uh, and then we emigrated in the late 1990s to the States. But the beginning of the project actually came from something I had no idea about what it meant in a story by Isaac Babel. There was a sentence that I didn't understand. It was actually all the way back in college. <laughs> and it was from Red Cavalry where Lutev, you know, the Jew in disguise traveling with the Red Army as a Cossack, as a war propagandist, is with Hasidic Jews in Zhutomir in Ukraine. And he is in the Hasidic court and he's very clearly speaking the stories in Russian, but he's clearly speaking not Russian to them. And I didn't know Yiddish then, but it was very clear to me that the story was actually taking place in Yiddish. And he's asked by the Rebbe, the head of the court, about what does a Jew do? Uh, and he says, I'm putting into verse the translations of Herschel Astropolier. Я перекладываю в стихи похождения Гершеля из Острополя. And like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. I have no idea. And so I started looking into 
what that might mean and sort of trying to figure out Jewish folklore in this case, who this Herschel was, was a trickster from Yiddish folklore. What does it mean for someone like Lutov in that context to answer the question about him being as a war propagandist for their army in this kind of circuitous way? And in a way, that was the beginning of the question because I realized that I was dealing with something that was a multilingual environment, at least a bilingual, and bilinguality is sort of really important for me in this book. So that was, I think, the inkling of the project all the way back in undergrad. That was sort of one point I can identify. Another one was when I was already researching my dissertation uh, and working uh, on a different text, actually, in Yiddish, and spending, I spent a couple of weeks in Minsk in 2008 or 2009 researching things and deciding to read through daily newspapers for 1929, which is when the novel that I was working on began to come out in Yiddish and found something in the papers that made me realize that the fictional protagonists of the text I was dealing with had lives that were anchored in the kind of lived reality of the city in 1929, a city that was becoming Soviet in a very particular way and was this kind of aha moment. They, the fictional family in the story goes to see a movie. I had a suspicion about what the movie was when I read the novel, but then I found movie listings for the week when they likely went there through other things I could juxtapose in the text. And I was like, this is like fascinating <laughs> to me. So that was another kind of the research moment. And I think that's when I landed on my approach, right? I'm sort of really very interested in close readings that delve into all manner of contextual matter, newspapers, sort of different sort of ideological discussions. But I try to ask a sort of a central question in a chapter, and then I try to figure out its multiple contexts. And then I'd say the third inspiration, point of inspiration, was translation. So this book was once a very bad version of this, was once my dissertation that I finished in 2010. And then I spent a lot of time ignoring the fact that it needed to become something else. I really did not like my dissertation. And I began to procrastinate in various ways. And one of those ways was getting myself involved in translation projects. So one fell into my lap, which was I wasn't myself translating, but I got to edit a translation of a, the same novel that I mean, the Soviet Yiddish novel by Moshe Kulbak called Zilminyaner, uh, and to write a critical introduction for it. But in the process of editing, I was really combing through the translation, and you develop this almost intimate connection with the text. And then later, together with Harriet Murav, we co-translated another novel that was of interest to both of us for different reasons, also from Yiddish, also a Soviet text also from the late 1920s, by David Bergelson. And that was really fun and maybe the most satisfying intellectual experience that I've had. Also, why, why is that? First of all, it's amazing to work with Harry Dvorov. Uh, we are now again translating together, so we've become this kind of very productive pair. It's just great to two minds where in different generations we hear different things. My ear is very tuned to Sovietness of text, and so we gravitate towards particular kind of texts. That, but then you really get to know the text. And when you get to know the text so closely, the text becomes something else for you as a reader than it was for other people who read it before and made it to be something else that they, in case of the text by Bergelson, decided it wasn't worth to translate it because others didn't need to know. But once you develop this kind of closeness with the text, you get to see things in it, and it's like completely striking. And so that translation practice 
was inspirational. But then I became, through that, attuned to the kinds of things that translators think about, the sort of close reasoning on the sort of granular level and how it might really shift the way that one thinks about a text. Yeah. So I think that these are my kind of three. You said that you are attuned to the Sovietness. And I want to talk about this term, Soviet Jew, and kind of break it apart Right, because it contains these two elements of the Soviet is the kind of newness, the thing that's in formation. And then, of course, being Jewish has a long cultural history, religious, et cetera, et cetera, historical experience. So what does it mean, some of the meanings of Soviet Jew? I think I'll start from what the book is not about, but how in some ways I came to think about this term in English. To the... English language, especially American ear, especially of a person of a certain generation, the term Soviet Jew connotes something that comes out of the Cold War. The participation in the, or the awareness of the Soviet Jewry movement or the free Soviet Jewry movement, as it was known by different names from the kind of 1960s all the way to the late 1980s, which was a movement of Jews in America, but also elsewhere in the West, uh, Americas, so North America, really Canada and the United States, but also elsewhere, to advocate on behalf of the Soviet Jews who should be able to emigrate. This is just a couple of words. It's much more complicated. But many Americans, and especially American Jews, but not only, are kind of aware of that history, were themselves participants. So my spouse is an American-born Jewish person. We have stuff from her grandparents who were born in the 1920s. There were pins and stamps and other paraphernalia with free Soviet Jewry sort of markings. So thinking about Soviet Jews or the Soviet Jew, right, as uh, Soviet Jews as people who needed to be freed, right? So held captive by the Soviet regime, not allowed to practice Judaism. I'm now putting kind of air quotes around these things because I'm speaking through the way that sort of the Americans or American Jews have imagined the notion. And so the only relationship with that term is that, right? So it's really shaped by the Cold War, and we can go into this. This is really fascinating to me. I've written this about this elsewhere. I'm really interested in thinking about this more. So I sort of start out there, and then I realize, okay, well, how did that come to be before... Soviet Jews came to be known in the West as the Jews that needed to be saved, Mm -hmm. right? Can we try to write a kind of prehistory of something that comes to be known as Soviet Jews to Jews in the West? At an earlier period, from the start of the Soviet period, from the revolution, and to slowly go and try to understand whether it might be a different kind of type than the one who by the 60s, 70s, and 80s comes to be thought of a person who needs to be freed and changed. And can we try to understand it on its terms before we sort of decide what to do with it? So that was the way that I think about the title in English, right? So once I think about the title in English, then I realized that it doesn't make any sense if you translate it into Russian, right? Because... Sovietsky Yevri doesn't make any sense because if you're a Jew in the Soviet Union, you of course you're Soviet. So the Soviet part would be completely unnecessary, right? So then we get into this other question that has to do with Yevri, the word in Russian, in the way that word also in a later period, really, later Soviet period, came to connote a passport nationality. It's sort of a, uh, uh, you know, Soviet, I mean, listeners of Ipatska would know this, but in case somebody else is listening, the different ethnic groups in the Soviet Union had their ethnicity written down in the internal documents, and it became almost like a commonplace 
right? That the Jew was the worst kind because you could be sort of discriminated against in sort of employment and education, et cetera, et cetera. And this is also something that the Jews in the West knew about Soviet Jews, that this was a strike against them, this fifth line in their passport, the nationality line. However, and this is what I sort of also started thinking about, this was not the case. The internal passport wasn't introduced until 1932. Its introduction had nothing to do with nationality policy. It had to do with residency and uh, tethering peasants to collective farms, especially in Ukraine. They didn't have the internal passport, so they couldn't reside in cities where you needed to have an internal passport. And it did have the ethnicity line, but it really wasn't enforced until later in the 1930s. Uh, And Jews had nothing to, they were not of interest to the Soviet state at that point. The state was really interested in Poles, especially in places like Belarus, where there were significant Polish minority because of the suspicions that Poland might start the war against the Soviet Union. So in the period that I write about, the 1920s and 1930s, there is no sense of a passport nationality (laughs) that is somehow defining Soviet Jews. So in trying to think about this backstory, I'm trying to think outside this at least kind of legal category that it comes to be in the later Soviet period. So what I'm then trying to do is to tell a different story, right? I'm trying to think about how the Soviet Jew came to be is this cultural construct. So you seem to be suggesting that the Soviet Jew of the Cold War is still tied to that 1920s, 30s Soviet Jew, but there is a break. Is the break the passport or is the break the Cold War and the the change of the discourse from one of becoming to one of needing saving? I mean, the break is the Second World War. The way that I think about the 1920s and 1930s begins with the violence of the Civil War, right? right? So there's a violence of the war that I think is foundational to the creation of the Soviet Jew of the 1920s and 1930s. Then, of course, there is genocidal violence after the period that I write about that resets everything. I worked with a mapmaker to make a map for the book, and that was really fun because I described a conceptual idea that I don't know from maps, but this person does. And I said what I wanted her to do is to try to show the traces of the former Pale of Settlement on the map of the time when the Pale of Settlement no longer existed. So if you look at that territory in the western borderlands of first the Russian Empire, then the Soviet Union, it then becomes again a contested territory in the Molotov-Ribbentrop, post-Molotov-Ribbentrop era, right, where the notion of who is Jewish, et cetera, how, what country they're in also changes once again, as do the experiences that people have who live in those territories. So I think that the break is really the Second World War and the Holocaust. Well, let's set up uh, let's set up the kind of historical and cultural context for Jewish people at the end of the Russian Empire. Jews are relegated legally in the Pale of Settlement. 1917 is a moment of emancipation. So go from there. What happens to begin the proto-formation of this figure you're talking about? Yeah. So, I mean, on the eve of the revolution, I really begin in 1917, really in February of 1917, and the end of the Pale of Settlement, which was abolished by the provisional government, not the Bolsheviks, and then the Bolsheviks uphold what essentially is citizenship rights for Jews and what had been the Russian Empire. On the eve of that, right, we had the pogroms of the 1880s, right, starting with the kind of assassination of Alexander II, another wave following or around 1905, also preceding 1905 and Kishinev in 1903, and also 
period of immigration, right? Sort of intense immigration out of the Russian Empire into mostly America, but not only. Also, importantly, Palestine. And I try to pick up those stories in my book as well to try to think about what happens to those people in, in a later period. And then sort of what's, again, a kind of a commonplace, right, what a lot of people tend to know is the presence of Jews and revolutionary movements. Trotsky, of course, being the sort of most famous example, somebody who becomes really part of the founding of the Bolshevik state and establishes the Red Army, etc. But to me, I'm thinking of 1917 as marking a break, right, that ends the of settlement. And when I say that, I have all these asterisks as to what do I mean by the Soviet Jew. In my book, this is an Ashkenazi figure, uh, you know, Jews of European background, and Yiddish speaking, who had lived in the Pale of Settlement since the end of the 18th century. I mean, they'd lived in those lands from longer before, but in terms of their state that oversaw the, the empire that oversaw them, is the lands that Russia had gotten from Poland and elsewhere at the end of the 18th century, where they were restricted by rights of residence, couldn't live in, in major cities, lived in Stettlach, these kind of town market towns. And that I try to think about the pale as a cultural space, a geographic space, but also cultural space, where this kind of Ashkenazi Yiddish culture emerges and it becomes modern in the 19th century through various kind of enlightenment movements and responses to enlightenment movements. There is Yiddish literature, which is really a secular phenomenon that is 19th century, kind of into the 20th century. And so to me, the Soviet moment is the kind of breaking apart of that pill. Jews could live anywhere. But I think about how the Soviet Jew, the type that I'm talking about, carries the pale along into the Soviet experience that it never goes away. And I try to think about how, and it's hard to describe because my examples are, and we'll get to examples hopefully, but attributes of the life in the pale or the culture of the pale or the language of the pale. But like for example, like yeah. just give an example. For example, I open the book with a story, ending of a story by Isaac Bible, the end of the almshouse. Uh, the end of the poor house where there are elderly Jews living in Odessa at an almshouse founded by kind of communal money, but it's on the grounds of a cemetery, of a Jewish cemetery. And it's 1919 or so, and they get kicked out from the poor house at the cemetery uh, by Bolsheviks, including Jews who are Bolsheviks. Uh, and the end of the story, Babi leaves them walking along a highway that he says, Kagdata, once upon a time, had led from the cemetery to Odessa. And then that's where they are. And he describes them as a heap of rags. So to me, this is such an evocative image because they're, they've, <laughs> people who left the cemetery to continue living somewhere where we don't know, right, where they're going to end up. And to me, this is really, what are these heap, what is this heap of rags, right? So I think of it as a kind of attribute of, folklore, literature, you know, religious practices, things like that, that get jolted out of some sort of environment where they've evolved and get cast out into the not known yes. <laughs> 
And then they become redefined by the encounter with the new Soviet man as a project and with the Soviet industrialization and with various ways in which the Soviet state would come to think of Jews as a nationality among many nationalities in the Soviet period. So that's sort of them. And what, what about the role of violence and trauma and pogroms? I mean, you know, when we think of mass Jewish violence, we, of course, immediately think of the Holocaust. But the Civil War period is quite comparable in, in many respects in terms of the levels of violence and, and how that hangs over the experience of Jews in that region in the 20s. Yeah, so this is mostly Ukraine in sort of 1919, 1920 into 1921. So to the way that you ask your question, Jeffrey Weidlinger wrote a book recently about the pogroms of the Civil War called In the Midst of a Civilized Europe. And I forget the subtitle, but he makes a point that it's that violence that later leads in some ways to the Holocaust. That's not the argument that I'm making, but it's very compelling in the way that he makes it. For example, that the refugee crisis from the former Russian imperial lands of Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe who survive that violence and move, for example, to Berlin, right? And suddenly Berlin in the 1920s, where there are acculturated, assimilated German Jews, suddenly is full of Jews, quote-unquote, backward Jews from, from the Pale of Settlement who make the German Jews look bad. And then there's a sort of fear that there's going to be a backlash. They're kind of the rags. Right, exactly. Oh, that, that, that's a good point, right? If you look beyond the confines of the former Russian Empire. So it's Jews who had lived in these lands, right? There were Polish lands, Ukrainian lands that get caught in crossfire essentially between kind of, especially in Ukraine and this kind of very rapidly shifting terrain between different kinds of armies, proto-states, attempted states. Uh, Conspiracies. Right. Formations, the emergence of the conspiracy of Judeo-Bolshevism is really important. Also a book by Paul Hannebrink, right, that has a whole chapter about the Russian Civil War. And in the way that Jews are understood, for example, by some counter-revolutionary forces as being in cahoots with the Bolsheviks or like the Bolsheviks, Trotsky becomes a sort of poster child of the manipulative Jew who tries to turn the whole world upside down. So the estimates vary. Some people think it's up to maybe 100,000 Jews who died in that violence. But what I came to realize, and this was, again, through translating with Harriet Murav, a novel by David Bergelson, who was a Yiddish writer, was an established author by 1920 who was himself a refugee from Ukraine, uh, lived in Moscow for a little bit, and then ended up in Berlin in 1921. And he lived there until 1934, until you couldn't live in Berlin anymore. <laughs> and then he made his way back to the Soviet Union. But he wrote this novel that we call Judgment in our translation, which is set in 1920 in these borderlands, somewhere on the border of Poland and Ukraine, and Bolsheviks are trying to hold on to this territory. And the kind of common narrative is that Bolsheviks you know, saved the Jews from Ukrainian nationalists, from monarchist forces, etc., and that they defended Jews from pogroms, stopped pogroms. This is true to a great extent, but not fully. Bolsheviks also participated in the violence against Jews. But in this novel, the main protagonist of it is a non-Jewish Bolshevik secret police guard. So he is the member of the Chika, and he is meant to be the savior figure, except that Bergelson writes him in such a way, he's sickly, 
he is assumed to be a goner, <laughs> that the image of the Soviet power isn't especially strong. And he sets that novel in 1920 when the end of the violence is unknown. He knows the end of the story because he writes it later in the mid-1920s. He writes it in Berlin, which is full of refugees, as I mentioned. Their testimonies of those refugees being collected and published already in Russian and the Yiddish and in Ukrainian in Berlin. So he knows the access, the, the sort of the post-history, but he sets it in the middle of the violence before it ends, indicating it as something that is a lingering possibility that never goes away. Right. So if you think about how the Soviet Jew was made as a book of recipes, right, that's the first ingredient is that charm of the pogroms that I try to locate in its moment with the help of this literary text. This has been studied recently quite prolifically by several people, which who point to a kind of lingering echoes of that charm. So Elisa Bimporad and and Nastashkevich, they also raise a question, for example, when it comes to gender violence, right, there's a mass rape yeah. that went unacknowledged for all kinds of reasons, cultural reasons, etc., that lingered on way into the Soviet period, right, that there were sort of families living with this trauma that was never discussed. So to me, it was really important to locate the moment when that begins to happen and to try to think about that as the sort of foundation. This whole issue of becoming made, becoming Soviet. This is a process that many millions of Soviet citizens are being subject to in a variety of different ways. And Jews are no exception. They are expected to become new people. And this phenomenon of the new is, of course, nothing particular to the Soviet period. This is a global, uh, at least in the Western modern phenomenon of becoming a more muscular, modern, cosmopolitan, et cetera, et cetera. But talk about this dynamic between – and even your comments about the lingering of the violence and the trauma I think even comes into this. This dynamic between wanting to be Soviet or becoming Soviet, whatever that may mean, but also being Jewish where there is a long legacy of discrimination and violence and caricature, et cetera, et cetera. How do these two phenomena interact with one another? I'll start with the, also with a kind of specific example and let's work our way from there so that it's a little bit more tethered to something. So since you bring up the kind of muscularity, et cetera, right? So that's something that I acknowledge in the book is that this figure that I'm writing about is assumed to be male, coded as male because of its kind of relationship to the new Soviet man. And on the one hand, on the other hand, to the way in which in Enlightenment movements in Europe, Jews, when the discussion was about Jews having civil rights, equal rights, citizenship rights in Prussia and Austro-Hungary, France, the discussion in the 18th century, the 19th century, the sort of the Jewish, the, the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, the discussion was always about the figure who was assumed to be male. The Jew was male and it was about can this figure who was studying the Talmud in the yeshiva, who is always a man, right, in this context, could that person become a fit body to serve in the imperial army, right? So, so these kinds of questions. So there's a sort of a gender dimension to this here. But there's also, there's a physical, uh, actual physical right. dimension too. If you consider, for example, one of the things that anti-Semitic propaganda shows is the Jew is weak, 
the Jew is subhuman and right. the new person is about breaking those caricatures. Right, is, is about that. So it's the discourse of the new Soviet man, but also it's the kind of related discourses of so Soviet modernization more broadly, including industrialization right. and the sort of the Stalin revolution. So that kind of uh, fun example for me was thinking about this novel set in Minsk in the late 1920s, early 1930s, novel by Moshe Kulbak, also a Yiddish writer, called Zelminyaner. Zelminyaner is a name of a family. Their, their paterfamilias is called Zalman, and his descendants are called Zelminyaner. So Kulbak, who knew Russian and knew Belarusian and lived in Vilna for some time and lived in Berlin for some time, returns to the Soviet Union, to Minsk, actually, which had by then become the Soviet Union in 1926, is parents ended up there during the First World War. And it's now part of the capital of Soviet Belarusia. And he writes this kind of comic novel that is a parody of a family saga. And here, so the Jewishness to me is important because it has a typology in Yiddish literature. You could read this novel as a kind of Tevye the Dairyman times five, maybe six, because instead of one paternal figure who is has children who get engaged in various projects of modernization on the eve of the Russian Revolution, as was the case with Sholem Aleichem and Tevye the Dairyman, or the character of Fidlin Ruf, kind of more commonly known. Here, it's the Bolshevik Revolution that becomes the text, or it becomes the, the cause for the rifts in the families that cause all kinds of comedy. So he places these people who are, say, sort of shtetl Jews, on the outskirts of what becomes a growing and expanding Soviet city. And then things come their way. Electricity comes their way. Radio comes their way. Things on the radio come their way, <laughs> including from Moscow. The light rail, the tramway comes their way and it allows them to go into the middle of the city and see films. And I'm very interested in what they're exposed to, right? And this is a multi-generational novel has a kind of a idealized version of how it's supposed to be, right? There's supposed to be a certain way when they're Soviet. But how the protagonist of this novel receive those messages in a very garbled way that produces comedy and, I mean, the, the tragic comedy, really. So one of the members of the older generation is a tailor and his... Artiel had been, you know, it's the, the nap is over, so he can't do what he used to do. Or even before nap, right, he was just sort of sole proprietor, right, of whatever he was doing. Now there's a factory, so he goes and he has this breakdown because he doesn't know what a code is anymore because he used to be able to make a code, but now he's on some part of the assembly line that there's one part of a code and he just completely loses the sense of self. Or thinking about the way that novel is written, there's a member of a family of a newer generation who is referred to in the novel as a militionnaire, a policeman, except that we learn that he probably is actually not in the police force, but possibly is like he's once seen washing floors in the police department. But he's associated with the new regime. He's the one who brings electricity to the place where they live. But he decides to get married, and he gets married to a cousin from the same kind of space where they live, which is not atypical, right, for Ashkenazi Jews or many other cultures. And at the wedding, because he's the proper aspiring Bolshevik, no Jewish ritual, right? That is his demand, so that there should not be a wedding. And so Kurbak is really 
fascinated by trying to find the language that can describe the phenomenon of something that isn't there, something that isn't there that is a religious practice that's associated with Judaism. And it's not there because somebody who is aspiring to be Soviet doesn't want it. But the language in which he writes doesn't allow for that to happen without referring to the things that used to be, right? There's no neutral way to say wedding, yeah. <laughs> right? The way that he says it in the novel is in Yiddish has chupa vekidushin, so chupa and blessings. So the wedding canopy and blessings that shouldn't happen and they don't happen. And so when they come to the place where there is a non-wedding, it's still described in the terms that evoke what had been. And to me, this is this really fast, almost like montage-like quality of the way that these things clash and then become markers, right? They're present and they're absent. And they are present in language that becomes something almost like a encyclopedia of what had been, but it, you still need to use it. Right to refer to what can't happen. So in, in many respects, it speaks to the difficulties or in some cases, even inability to translate, right? There's no language to translate, say, that the wedding into a new form. So you only have the language of the past. Exactly, right? In the original, this is the text that I, the translation of which I edited into English, right? But when I was editing the translation into English, there is a wonderful Russian translation from 1960 by Rahil Baumwoll, who was a poet from, from Minsk, who knew Kulbak at the time that he was in Minsk. Wonderful translation. I had then sort of met Kulbak's daughter, who lived in Tel Aviv. His second child, his first child died in the Holocaust. She was much younger and was hidden. But she told me that that print run had sold out in 1960. And Russian is much closer to the Yiddish than English, because English truly has very different echoes. And then you try to figure out how do you translate this, something that is present in the original language. The reader at the time reading it is very much attuned to how that language is marked by what explicitly cannot be in the sort of new atheist Bolshevik Soviet mode, but is still there. What about another aspect? Because the people you're looking at are literary types, filmmakers, other types of intellectuals, whether organic or otherwise. And the other intellectual secular tradition at the time, of course, is nationalism. Does nationalism, Zionism play a role in this formation of the Soviet Jew? So let's look at it, you know, back to the recipe book, right? So ingredient one, trauma, lingering trauma. Ingredient two, interaction with the new Soviet man, with industrialization, with kind of Soviet modernity. And then maybe ingredient three, right, is to think about the sort of Soviet inversion of Zionism, since we bring that up, in the way that the Soviet state at the time that I write about thought about Jews as a Soviet people, here I come to the case of Birobidzhan, which then becomes known as the Jewish Autonomous Region in 1934. It's a, a place on the map that not many people know in the Far East, on the border with Manchuria, with China, on the other side of the Amur River that has absolutely no historic connection to Jews. You could think of it in Yiddish as Ekvelt, right, the end of the world. And so the Soviet state decides in 1928 that this is going to be designated as a territory for Jewish settlement so that two conditions that the state sees as essential for a Soviet people uh, or Soviet ethnic minority to be the case come to be. One is territory, right, so that the, a Soviet nation, uh, right, is located in 
a land, right? So there are Soviet Ukrainians, there are Soviet Belarusians, there are Soviet Armenians, there are Soviet Bashkirs, Tatars, Udmurts, etc., right? And the second one is language. So with the territory, Jews had a problem because they come from back to the pale, right? But nobody is going to cede some part of the pale to, to form a Jewish region because it's taken by other title nations, the Belarusians, the Ukrainians, the, the Moldovans. So there, there were attempts in the 1920s to establish Jewish agricultural colonies in Crimea. So that's also a really interesting kind of history of this. That would have been fascinating if that somehow came to be, right? That's contested in another way. So this territory is picked in the Far East. And the other one is language, right? So language is understood to be Yiddish, as a language which makes sense, right, that is the spoken vernacular of Ashkenazi Jews who form the majority of Jews who become citizens of the Soviet Union. But when you think about language and territory in kind of parallel Jewish nationalist discourses, it's a very clear inversion of Zionism, yeah. right? So the territory being Palestine, right, the historic connection to historic Palestine, and language being Hebrew, right? The language that is revived at that point as a modern language, but has connections to, of course, the Hebrew Bible and the language of religious practice. So in many ways, Birbijan becomes this kind of fantastic propagandistic point. Like, you have that thing in Palestine, which is understood to be a project of British colonialism, and it's understood to be done in a language of a religious cult, right? I mean, air quotes, yeah. right, around the kind of the Soviet usage of these terms. Whereas here we have the language of the Jewish working class and in this kind of wonderful land. And when you read the sort of propagandistic literature, like even the language used intentionally mimics the common places of Zionism, right? There is all this like pamphlets about beekeeping in Birabidjan. And of course, the land of Israel is the land of milk and honey. You really need to drain the swamps in Birabidjan. There's all this writing about gnus, this like tiny mosquitoes. And of course, the draining of the swamps is part of the kind of Zionist ethos. Right. Turn the land into fertile land. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so much of it is agricultural. And so it becomes really interesting for me. So very clearly, right, that is really a parallel, but also aesthetically. Right. So if you look at posters, iconography of the Zionist movement from earlier, but also from this period, it's really not that different from socialist realist iconography. You replace the Hebrew writing with Yiddish and you get something that looks really very, very similar. Yeah, because Zionism, going back to this idea of the maleness and the muscularity, exactly. it's, That's it's the same images yes. in many right. respects. But the way that it plays into my book, right, that I have to kind of come back up. How is that an ingredient yeah. in the making of the Soviet Union? Because, and people have asked me this question, because the number are insignificant, right? There is never, this is not a successful project. If you look at a detailed map of the Russian Federation today, there is Yvreyski Autonomy Okrug, there is a Jewish Autonomy, it's still there, right? It's with the capital in Birbijan, it has, I don't know, 0.2% Jews in it. I mean, mostly Koreans, from my understanding. Right, <laughs> right. So it's a territory that the Russian Empire had acquired through wars, right? It had been part of Manchuria, and they had tried to hold on to it in various ways. So what I write about is to think about, well, how do you write about something that the state thinks is the place for Jews to become Soviet, right? For Jews to become Soviet in their own land, and their own language, but then Jews don't really come there. There is some thousands, maybe a few tens of thousands at the peak of this, but this is not, this is nothing compared to the population of Jews in the Soviet Union. But it's significant because of its presence in basically kind of discourse at the time. This is promoted 
as the place for Jews to become Soviet, right? Kalinin, the sort of figure, head of the Soviet state, has articles about Berbijan and he, they get translated into Yiddish and it's sort of shown to others. There's interest in this from parts of the American Jewish community. Yeah, Jews in Argentina yes, too immigrate. people come, right? It fits within other attempts both in reality but also in thought to establish other Jewish territories mm-hmm. around the world. So there's a book by Adam Rovner and I don't remember the title, but it's about many Zions, including in Madagascar, including just many different places, right? So this is sort of part of that phenomenon as well. So to me, what's really important is thinking about the figure that never arrives where it's supposed to be. And so I'm drawn to texts where there's a couple of writers, Russian language writers, from Odessa, Victor Fink. Yeah, I want to actually read this quote okay, sure. from Victor Fink because it's, yeah. it really speaks to what you're saying here. So in Victor Fink's 1930 book, Jews in the Taiga. Yevrev <laughs> Taiga. Yeah. <laughs> A is, sequel to Yevrev Pole. Okay, right? he'd, written, he'd written about the Crimea, colonies uh-huh. of Crimea. Oh, interesting. So about 100 pages into this book, he has this line, which I just, it really grabbed me. It says, quote, the reader expected a book about Jews. He got through all these many pages already, and he is still reading about some Cossacks, hunters, local primitives, about poachers who shoot deer, and almost nothing about the Jews in the taiga. Why? And yes, why? (laughs) (laughs) So this is how I came to this topic, is thinking about why Fink, but also Simon Gert is another writer from Odessa. They become interested in all these other things that are not Jews in Berbijan because I think... It's impossible for them to write about something that isn't there, but they're compelled to do so. I'm interested in the two of them because they participated as journalists in an actual expedition to Birbijan in 1929 that was organized by one of the American Jewish organizations that was interested in this particular kind of colonization project. It was the head of the expedition was Benjamin Harris, the president of Brigham Young University. So at one point, this doesn't make it into my book, but I went into a deep rabbit hole thinking about Mormons and their notion of promised lands Mm -hmm. to think about whether there's, and I I just kind of didn't know what to do with this, but maybe one day I can get into the presidential archives of BYU and see what, maybe he kept some notes about where did he go on a trip in his mind, right? But they go on the National Expedition in 1929, which is the very beginning of the project. But then they get obsessed with it and continue writing about it through the 1930s, but never seem to be able to get beyond that moment of 1929 when it's presented as a promise, right? So Gert writes a novel in 1936, but it's set in 1929, because there's nothing to describe. And so Fink, he writes Ocherke, right? The sort of particular kind of genre of literary sketches. And there, a lot of them are about Amurski Kazaki, so Amur Cossacks, who are host of Cossacks forcibly resettled from around Chita. So they're in a different part of Siberia. So it's about a thousand miles away, more west, who get forcibly resettled to this part of the newly acquired, you know, what becomes the Russian Empire, acquired through wars with China and resettled. It's a settler colonial project, right, to the Russian Empire. They're trying to settle a group that is not ethnic Koreans, right, not who kind of populate that area, not other ethnicities that then can be held on to as part of the Russian Empire. And Fink is really fascinated by what he sees in 1929 is basically 
they're third-generation displaced people, right, 1850s is when they were forcibly resettled. And he finds elderly people who still remember being displaced as children, and they tell him about the trauma of displacement. And they talk about how they used to be a people who rode horses and knew how to do things, and then they got resettled, and they fell into this disrepair. It sounds like an allegory for the Jewish experience in many respects. And I think that's what he maybe, that's the way I read it. I think that's the way he writes it. He is so interested in them because he tries to think about the question that he's not allowed to ask. Is this what's going to happen if Jews are relocated in the same way? So this absence, this non-arrival is an important marker and instead they find other things to write about to avoid the sort of titular subject, uh, which is to me completely just really fascinating. And and in in many respects too, this kind of – this focus, obsession with the promise – is the fact that the promise of a nation state for Jews or a, a homeland is unfulfilled right at that point in time. Yes. I mean you talk about a time – this is pre-war, right, where before the Second World War, the Palestine is under the British mandate. So it is part of the British Empire and there isn't a state and the sort of intellectual force behind Zionism is something that the project behind Berbijan kind of mimics. But it mimics it in a very clumsy way, right? So it's kind of – becomes obvious, especially in retrospect. But at the time, I think it's a potent ideological point. I now don't remember what exactly it was, but I did find some polemical writing when I was doing research at Hebrew University that was specifically engaging from the side of the Zionist settlement in Palestine, engaging this kind of nuisance, <laughs> right? That was sort of the, the Biribijan project. But it's a you know, tricky question even into today. So. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Let's talk about the issue of mobility because one of the things that the revolution does is it allows for mobility of Jews to settle where they want to settle, to immigrate abroad. Well, they were doing that before, of course. But you have these tales of people immigrating from and then some of them return, right? And how does this maybe dialogue with diaspora and mobility? And of course, as a review of your book that just came out, that the kind of elephant in the room is Yuri Sloshkin's uh, <laughs> The Jewish Century, which is really one of the defining characteristics is Jews as Mercurian. They, they're very mobile. Great question. Let me – I'll get to Sloshkin somehow. I promise. But I'll start with the first part of your question. I guess the fourth ingredient, right, if we're kind of thinking about that, is thinking about reverse migration. And we touched on this earlier in the interview, how on the eve of the 1917 revolution, two million, I mean, I'm not a demographer to know the numbers, of Jews who had lived in the Russian Empire had emigrated, right? Of them, a large number to America, but some also to Palestine, right? So it's former Russian imperial subjects who are form at that point, the core of the settlement in Zionist Palestine. So I'm very interested in the returnee (laughs) who, for me, so I do this with the help of film. I realized that there is a number of films made in the 1930s. So, you know, Stalinist films that could be read alongside much more known Stalin era films that imagine this figure of a Jewish person who left the Russian Empire and then is returning because they are, well, for a number of reasons, right? They could be abstractly lured by the promise of the revolution, which is not ahistorical. This did happen. There were 
Jews who were born and grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in Brooklyn, right, whose parents had come from the Russian Empire, who during the Great Depression, and this is Soviet industrialization, become really attracted to this place for all kinds of reasons. So that's one. Another reason is that they have families that are still back in what's now the Soviet Union. The ones who live in America, you know, maybe have means to travel. They might visit their uncle who never left the shtetl in Ukraine and then see for themselves what it is. There also, they pop up in accounts of people there too, right? So this person arrives from, from abroad. And also there's another kind of adjacent type, not a Jewish type necessarily, but in cinema of this time, but also in culture, is the foreign specialist. Mm-hmm. The American engineer or the German engineer who gets brought in to help build a new factory somewhere in Magnitogorsk or whatever, paradigmatically Magnitogorsk, but maybe elsewhere too. So these get kind of combined into this figure of the returnee. And for me, the question then becomes, because I'm thinking about how does that figure of a one-time Jew from the Russian Empire who then became a Jew in America, let's say, how do they become or how do they try to become a Jew in the Soviet Union? The idea is that, you know, ideally, right, if the main protagonist of that chapter is a bricklayer, it's a film about a bricklayer who had broke his back building skyscrapers for the Rockefellers in New York, and there he comes to visit his father in the shtetl in Ukraine. His father is played by Lamon Mikhoyls, the really famous, really important Yiddish actor who would be killed in 1948. And his father had become, you know, he's on with the program. He's like fully committed to the Soviet cause and he is involved in various construction. And so the protagonist of this film gets into a, a spat, into a dispute with the local factory over the means of how bricks should be laid. It's a Soviet film <laughs> yes. of 1932, <laughs> right? The main ideological question, right? <laughs> because in the film was about CIT, Central Institute Truda, there's this whole, and you know, people have written about this. Julia Weingurt has a book about the sort of the aesthetics of the, and the mechanics of the avant-garde and talks about CIT, but also other people. You know, it's about kind of biodynamics and the mechanics of the body. And there's a sort of Slavic looking upright person who like knows how to lay bricks correctly. And there is our protagonist, Nathan Becker, who wants to lay bricks the way that he knows. So he challenges him to a duel or the Soviet version of a duel, which is about who can build a bigger wall of bricks <laughs> in an eight hour period, I believe. So, and what's really fascinating to me is that it doesn't work well for the Jew who returns from America. And I don't want to spoil the plot of this really exciting film for you. It is on YouTube, The Return of Nathan Becker, <laughs> if you want to watch. Or at least it was on YouTube before. Though the first 15 minutes of it is absent on YouTube. The first 15 minutes are in Yiddish and the rest of it. I mean, it's all dubbed because that technology is all about dubbing, but most of the Yiddish print is missing. The reason it doesn't work out to me, right, it's, it could really speculate, is that this figure becomes doubly marked in a negative sense. So, so not only is this person, this type, a carrier of the baggage of the pale, he is also now carrying the baggage of the capitalist yes. world, right? And it's marked negative in the way in which it doesn't align with what a new Soviet man is supposed to be. So instead of a kind of a Jewish version of the new Soviet man, we end up with the Soviet Jew 
who is neither, <laughs> right? Who is sort of somehow in between and is compromised in various ways. So that to me is very important. And this figure pops up elsewhere as well. I write about, we've talked about Berbijan already, but one of the texts about Berbijan is a film from 1936 called Seekers of Happiness, Escaita de Chastia, where the main protagonist, or really the family of protagonists who are resettling in Berbijan come from abroad, then it never says where they're from, but the film opens with a ship at sea, and then they take a railroad, you know, a train for a long time, and then the main protagonist is a kind of a Luftmensch, man of air, who has very kind of capitalist fantasies to the point of kind of an anti-Semitic caricature. Mm-hmm. It's about gold. It really does sort of deal with anti-Semitic stereotype. But he also talks about the place of their former residence as a place where he could be in the sun and could pray. Mm-hmm. So to me, they're coming from Palestine, yeah. <laughs> right? And they're maybe crossing the Mediterranean and then the Black Sea into Odessa. Maybe they're taking the train. So also marked in this way. So I'm interested interested in the continuity of the pre-revolutionary stories of Jews from the Russian Empire and the way that then there's a break of a couple of decades and then they get picked up. You find their traces in the Soviet period. Are there any other ingredients in this recipe? Well, back to Bible, right? We started with what inspired me to write the book. And I think that the fifth one would be folklore, is to think about folklore, folk culture, Yiddish folklore in the way in which Isaac Bible is my example in the book, but there are also others, try to think, and I think this is really crucial for me, try to think through kind of Jewish cultural knowledge, sometimes it's Yiddish cultural knowledge, but it's somehow very specifically culturally Ashkenazi Jewish in a very specific way, and they located it in the Soviet project. And they do it, and this is important for my argument, they do it to me not to preserve something that is Jewish that can be walled off from the Soviet. Because I think there's a tendency of that in some of the other books about Soviet Jewish literature, Russian Jewish literature, to try to disentangle the Jewish from the Soviet. That somehow to claim that the real meaning of something resides in this kind of Jewishness that only some can see. That's not my reading. The way that I think about it is that Jewishly marked attribute does get deployed into the Soviet experience in a way that something new results that is neither Soviet nor Jewish, but Soviet, the Soviet and the Jew are part of the same equation. And so for Isaac Bible, right, that ingredient is introducing this trickster from Yiddish folklore. This is the longest chapter in the book. This is where this all started. I'm not going to tell the whole story, obviously, but he begins to be obsessed with this folkloric figure from Yiddish. Early on, early in his career, he writes one story with that protagonist in its title. Not title, but he's the title protagonist, the main protagonist of a story called Shabbos Nachum, who is about Gershel Estrapolia. It's really an adaptation of a story from Yiddish folklore. I go on this deep dive trying to locate the quote-unquote original of that story, which you really can't do with folklore. But there are many chapbooks in Yiddish published in the Russian Empire with stories about this very popular Yiddish protagonist. So I locate something that's published by an Odessa publishing house that I can imagine was maybe on the bookshelf of Bible's grandmother or something, or it didn't need to be, but maybe it was told in some way. And then I look at the kind of as a proof text and what Bible does with it, and it's, you know, his Russian is maybe eight, nine times longer. So he clearly is interested in different things other than just rewriting a a Jewish story. And then I'm interested in how he inserts references to this figure 
in key moments of his own kind of literary project and what it touches on. So I look at Babir's writing as a journalist in Petrograd right after the revolution in 1918 and the evocation of destruction of Jerusalem in comparison to what happened to Petrograd in 1918 and the way that typology kind of fits in and how he works through that. Of course, the Bolshevik-Polish War of 1920 and the way that kind of the expansionist aspect of the Bolshevik Revolution gets tackled with the help for by bit of the subversive figure. And then I also think about larger kind of anti-religious campaigns where that Yiddish protagonist again pops up. And to me, he's indicative of Bible's awareness and also actually of something that has nothing to do with the Jews. It is about collectivization of Ukrainian peasants. Pops up again. And to me, Bible is trying to think about this kind of very fluid Yiddish trickster in a very particular way that then allows him to open up the Soviet project mm. and to be able to see things in it that maybe others don't. So that's like my fifth ingredient, right? Some kind of folkloric Jewish knowledge that isn't preserved for the sake of keeping up Jewish culture, Jewish tradition, but instead acquires this kind of additional force within the Soviet project. And finally, does the Soviet Jew still exist? Great question. So one version of the way that I was asked this question at a couple of talks was people asking me, well, does that help us to understand Volodymyr Zelensky, right, the president of Ukraine, right? But it's interesting to me, and this is not what my argument is, right? right? But I'm interested in how this kind of question sounds to some people, right? And especially around the beginning of the full-scale invasion of of Ukraine by Russia, there was all this interest in Zelensky. I mean, there still is, but there was a lot more. And there was a lot of interest in him as a Jewish person, as a person of... Jewish background, it was hard for people in the West to understand exactly what flavor of a Jew he was, uh, because there was a need to understand what was it that was sort of Soviet Jewish about him still in this period of Ukrainian independence that he could then reference and deploy in the way that he constructed his public persona as a grandchild of war veterans and somebody with some Holocaust trauma in his family, right? So Jewish war veterans, there's this kind of Jewish Red Army veterans. So there's this whole kind of, I think that's sort of interesting to people today, right? For that reason, for example. But to think about it more, to answer your question, to think about how to, if there is such a figure, I do need to write part two of the book, which would think about the Cold War and would think about how to think about and through the trauma of the Holocaust and the transformation and the kind of politicization in the global sense of Soviet Jews in the Cold War discourse and think about whether Jews of Soviet background who live today might be thought of as themselves or descendants of this cultural type and what it means. And it means very different things right. in the Cold War period. And there's also, of course, a Jewish revival beginning in the 60s. Right. A rediscovery of, of one's religious, Jewish yeah, of religion. religiosity, right? There is, of course, 
Jewish nationalism and, and yeah. Zionism that is a significant presence among Jews of Soviet heritage who are living today and including where they live, like over a million of them living in Israel. Yeah, and that, there's a revival of Jewishness too amongst the, Right, those. exactly, right, and of different kinds of religious expression, exactly, right? And in some ways, some of it, some people would say that part of that is to get away from Sovietness and the Soviet background, to rediscover one's Jewish roots, to rediscover something that the Soviets had try to suppress. That would be one way of telling the story. That's the Soviet Jewry movement narrative. We save those people so they can become Jews. But that's not satisfactory to me as the only answer, right? I don't know if I'm writing this book, but this is in my mind. I've done some work on contemporary English language literature by immigrant writers who are Jews who came from the Soviet Union, often as children. So Gary Steingart, Irene Rehn, who lives in Pittsburgh and might come to my talk today, whose work I really admire, David Bismosgis, Anu Lynch, there's a whole kind of really, and also they're younger and newer. I, I just got a, a novel by Sasha Vasiluk that hasn't come out yet in, in proofs. Uh, there's, there's a younger generation of, people keep writing, right? So kind of thinking through that experience in very different ways. So thinking back to Soviet history, they're not, all novels about or short stories only about the immigrant experience. Some of them do delve into the understanding of Sovietness and Soviet Jewishness in various ways and displacement. So I think in that way, that story is really of interest and is not over. That's one way of thinking about this. Another way, I mentioned that I'm translating again, together with Harriet Murav, we're working on a book of short stories by seven different authors five of them who wrote in Yiddish and two of them who wrote in Russian, all published in the Soviet Union, all Soviet writers, in one case, one post-Soviet writer, starting in 1945 is our earliest text and 2007 is our last, but most of them are really the Soviet period, except for the one story. And we published sometimes only in Yiddish, in some cases in Yiddish and translated often by authors themselves into Russian and also published. So available. We're not trying to find stuff that was unavailable, but really something that was there that engages with the Holocaust in various ways that push us to think beyond what we conventionally know about Soviet Jews and the way that they think about the Holocaust. Often that they knew quite little or because the state didn't allow them to remember that the commemorations were quite localized in various ways. We're trying to think about the presence of that actually in the cultural context if you know how to read it. So translation is step one, but really trying to understand, right, how we can look within official culture of the Cold War for traces of how we might define what Soviet Jews are. And then with that, to begin to think about that critically as well, how that feeds into the kind of the, the post-history. <laughs> that was Sasha Senderovich. Sasha Senderovich is an associate professor in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Washington. He's the translator of Moshe Kulbak's Soviet Yiddish novel, The Zemlyaners, a family saga. And together with Harriet Murov, he translated the Yiddish writer David Bergeson's Judgment, a novel. He's the author of How the Soviet Jew Was Made, published by Harvard University Press. So I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. And this episode was edited and mixed by Daniel Cooper from Podcuts Editing. If you have some audio you need to have worked on, edited, or mixed, please consider using Daniel's services. That's why we've partnered with them, because it makes the show sound better. So go to podcutsediting.com, and Daniel will give you your first edit for free. 
And as you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners just like you. If you like this podcast and really want to help us out, first off, consider becoming a patron. Throw us a couple of bucks every month. And if you can't afford that for whatever reason, then at least help us promote the show by telling your friends, family, social media, whoever, your dog. I tell my dog to listen all the time, but she ignores me (laughs) because we would really appreciate your support. So until next time, bye. Bye. Bye.